Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And it's kind of a chillyish, raw WIP day, although the sun's going to come out later. The sun is always going to come out later, and that's something to remember as we encounter the stresses of the world. And I'm going to get right to work here on WIP Sunday as I welcome author Dale Peterson, Dale's new book, The Ghost of Gambe, a true story of love, death in an African wilderness. Good morning, Dale Peterson. Good morning, Peter. Dale, who are the who or what are the ghosts of Gambe? Well, Gambe, of course, is the uh, the place where Jane Goodall, the chimpanzee pioneer researcher, uh, created her camp in 1960. It's still going on. It's still a research station even to this day, 50 years later. And the ghosts are um, essentially unfinished business that happened. Uh, real ghosts in the sense that um, there was a death that happened in 1969. Uh, At least two people were deeply affected by this lifetime trauma, and they were haunted by this death. Um, And there are other kinds of ghosts, uh, but both of the people who were haunted actually had visions of the, uh, the person who died, the person who died was a young American woman, uh, 26 years old, named Ruth Davis, and uh, she died very suddenly and uh, somewhat mysteriously. Uh, her body was found. She disappeared in the forest on July 12, 1969. Her body was found six days later at the bottom of a high waterfall. Uh, so this my book is an attempt to resolve the questions of what happened and to to set to rest the, the ghosts of Gambi. Now, it seems to me we can't understand the ghosts of Gambi without understanding Jane Goodall because she was such an, and is such an amazing, big personality. Help us understand Jane. Well, she is amazing, and she's still very much alive, and um, she's 84 years old at this point. Uh, and I've known Jane for 30 years. Um, I wrote a book with her uh, several years ago, and in the process of writing that book, I became her friend. Uh, and then I wrote her biography, which came out in 2006. So Jane really did this amazing thing in 1960. She, she went to an African forest, and she set up her tent, she brought along her mother for company, and she also had an African cook who showed up and was there with them, those the three of them, living alone in the forest for months and um, living among uh, wild chimpanzees. At the time, uh, no one else had ever done that because everybody knew uh, convincingly that, number one, chimpanzees are many times stronger than any human Number two, wild chimpanzees are terribly dangerous and would tear you to pieces. Jane uh, felt differently. She had a different theory about wild chimpanzees. She felt that if she didn't present herself as a threat, they wouldn't attack her. And she turned out to be right. And in the process of being there 
and studying the chimps, she uh, made some spectacular contributions to um, the science of primatology uh, and also the science of anthropology, understanding human ancestral behavior based on um, the behavior of humans' closest relative in the present, chimpanzees. Uh, so this was an amazing thing, just an amazing act of courage, uh, an amazing act of physical stamina just to be in that rainforest and climb those difficult uh, hills and um, deal with that very, very difficult topography. Um, and she had some great breakthroughs. The most obvious one was which that she discovered chimpanzees use tools. And before that moment, the idea, everybody thought, in fact, the definition of humans for physical anthropologists was humans were the tool-making and using animal. And here Jane was discovering that chimpanzees were fashioning and using sticks and palm fronds uh, as tools to get into uh, termite mounds and fish for termites. Yes. She was by, there was a big National Geographic article on her in 1963, and that that was the beginning of her fame, which continues to this day. She's possibly the most famous uh, woman scientist in history. And certainly um, in popular culture. Yes. Um, people like Cheetah and Cousin Bessie from the Beverly Hillbillies just to say two famous chimpanzees mm. help came to understand helped us understand the humanity of chimpanzees right and she proved it scientifically yes um, take us in back to the camp in Gombe 1969 well um, in fact the entire book does that and and uh, the way I've approached this this death um, the death was mysterious. Uh, there was a lot of gossip about it. Um, some people said that she committed suicide. Some people said that she was pushed. Uh, and the official report was it was an accident. And in 2008, I was approached by um, Ruth's um, lover, the person who was most devastated by her death because they were at that point thinking of getting married and um, so she died and he was devastated what he did in response was what a lot of people would do he just refused to think about her and refused to to even you know he put all of her letters away he put every note he had about her into a box both physically and also in his mind he put all of that Thing into you know the whole memory of Ruth into a box, and then later on in 2008 he started to open the box, and it was an extremely traumatic experience. He started to investigate Ruth's death and try to remember who she was and what happened and where people were, and that remembering I think was very traumatic. That was the moment, by the way, when. He had his own visit, his what seemed like a ghost appearing to him in the dark in his bedroom one night. Um, and he's 
told me about it. He was convinced it wasn't a dream. He also didn't believe in ghosts, so it was a, he, I guess we call it a vision, but he uh, came to me. I had known him because for many years, and he had been a, a friend as well, and uh, he just started talking, and I became his therapist, basically. I just sat and listened to him for hours and hours and hours over a period of about three years. I would come and come down. He lives in Washington. He lived in Washington, and I would come down there, sit with him, and we'd talk. And I tape-recorded all of the talks because he and I understood it might be a book. So in the process of that talk, I began to develop an understanding of what happened. And the book is really the answer to, to what happened. And I, I do that by reconstructing everything I can about those two years when Ruth was there and Geza was there leading up to the, her death. And um, so I did not only Ruth, not only Gaze's interviews, and not only going through Ruth's letters, and uh, but also going through Jane Goodall's letters from that period, and letters from other people, and journals from other people, and interviewing other people until I had what I felt was a very full picture of life at Gombe during that period, and that's my attempt to answer the question of what happened in 1969. What was life at Gandhi like? Well, um, I think I think of it as being similar, so, well, socially, similar to uh, a, a small group of people in a space uh, flight going to Mars. It was very, very remote. And um, so the people who were there, the researchers, uh, we're very isolated, and so imagine what it's like in, if you're in a space capsule going to Mars with six other people, and you may not like them all. So there was tension, social tension in camp, and uh, it quite a bit. And uh, so that's the first thing that I began to discover about it was people did not get along. It was not... I mean, I used the metaphor of being in a space capsule, but you could leave. You could fly to Nairobi. It costs money. Uh, so you might do that in an emergency, but um, it was not simple. You would, First, you had to take a boat to the nearest town. Then you had to take a train to the nearest city, and then you had to catch a flight. So it was that kind of remoteness. Uh, and remote in other ways, you... You know, they didn't get any radio signals that were any good, so they couldn't hear news from the outside world easily. They would occasionally get a very faint signal from Voice of America or BBC News, but that was it. And even, you know, news magazines took about two two weeks to get there by mail, so they were two weeks behind any, anything that was happening in the world. So remoteness was part of it. Um, this and the isolation and some social tension among the researchers. Uh, there were also Africans working there, so there was another social group there, and I think the Africans and the researchers actually got along quite well, so I don't think there was tension between them. I never saw any evidence of that. There were also fishermen along the shore, and so that was another social context. 
And then there was the physical environment. And the place was extremely rugged. It's a very, very, it's on a, an escarpment rising up from the, from the lake. Lake Tanganyika is the, uh, Gambia is on the shore of Lake Tanganyika. And if you don't know African geography, I'll just say Lake Tanganyika is the, the second largest um, freshwater lake in the world. So it's, you know, 750 miles long. It's a very big lake. It's really like an ocean sea. And um, so the lake is very much a presence at Gombe. The, the shores of Gombe lap the lake for a, a 10, 10 mile shoreline. And then you go back from the 10 mile shoreline uh, about a mile, and that's the other edge of Gombe. But that mile is going very, very steep up, a very steep incline, uh, very rugged with lots of ravines and um, waterfalls and. Um, so it's a very complicated place topographically, topologically, and, and it's also, um, you know, it's a rainforest, so it's complicated in terms of the vegetation. And it's an African rainforest, which means a lot of wild animals there. There used to be leopards there. Uh, there used to be buffalo. They're not anymore. Uh, and about 10 very poisonous kinds of snakes, python 16 feet long. Mm. Uh, so it's an interesting place. And monitor lizards, that would be six feet long. So um, an interesting place, and there are uh, certainly dangers there. Uh, the chimpanzees, I've described them as being, you know, Jane managed to demonstrate that they weren't dangerous to humans as long as they weren't threatened. But they could be dangerous, and um, you know, um, certainly you wouldn't bring a baby into Gambi because um, chimpanzees um, attack and eat monkeys uh, for food. They, they're meat eaters um, and also fruit eaters, and they're both um, like humans, omnivores, and so they would. Imagine they would, if they saw a human baby, they might easily think this is a wonderful, wonderful monkey. Then they might so there's that that danger, uh, and there's also the danger of some chimpanzee getting out of control or accidentally hurting a person. So uh, physical danger was present all the time, and that's part of the picture of Gambi during that period. Right. Who then was Ruth Davis? Ruth was an American, and uh, she was a student, a geology student at George Washington University, and she graduated with that degree. Uh, it happened that her uh, most important professor uh, was the father of Geza Teleki, and Geza and Ruth became lovers in, um, you know, the mid-1960s. Gaza also graduated from George Washington University, and he wanted to be an anthropologist. So he uh, went to graduate school in anthropology at uh, Penn State, and within a, a relatively short period of time, he had started to correspond with uh, a man named Louis Leakey, who lived in Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya, and was a famous... Um, 
paleoanthropologist who was interested in digging up the, uh, the artifacts and uh, the bones of early humans. And uh, Geza wanted to work for the famous Louis Leakey, so he was corresponding with him. But Leakey was also the person who sponsored the Chain Goodall expedition in, in, uh, in Gambi. And so after a while, Leakey said, look, you, I don't have any work for you, but if you want to work with Jane Goodall, I'll get you a job there. But you have to go right away. So, so Geza uh, went uh, in, uh, showed up in, um, in Africa in January of 1989, 1988, sorry, 1968, uh, looking for a job with Jane Goodall. And so he got the job there and... Uh, after a while, after he'd gotten to know Jane and her husband, uh, Hugo, um, he mentioned that he had a girlfriend uh, living in, she was living in Washington, D.C. then, and he, um, Jane said, well, can she type? And Geza said, she's the fastest type, typist in Washington. Um, and that was his impression. She was a very fast typist. So Ruth was hired as a typist to come out and to type notes because the researchers were all taking behavioral notes on the chimpanzees. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Dale Peterson, author of The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love, Death in an African Wilderness. Now, Dale, I need you to stay with me. Got to run a few commercials here. We'll be back in just a bit to WIP time. 719. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. My guest this morning, Dale Peterson, author of The Ghost of Gambe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. Dale, was Ruth going because she wanted a job, because they were going to pay her well, intellectual curiosity, or for lust of her boyfriend? <laughs> well, um, I think uh, she was starting to have a, a strong relationship with her boyfriend, but I'm sure that was not the motivation. I think she wanted to try something new with her life, and it seemed like an adventure. She was young. She was in her early 20s, and um, so she just went off into the unknown uh, with this opportunity. She really didn't fully know what she was getting into, but um, she took a chance. No flush toilets, though, and no showers. <laughs> well, yes, and for many of us, that would be a, a disadvantage. But I think she really loved it. She just loved um, living very, very close to the natural world. Uh, she was among animals pretty much all the time. There were chimpanzees. There were monkeys of various sorts. There were you know, all kinds of other wild animals. I mentioned some of the more dangerous ones earlier. And Ruth didn't mind uh, no flush toilets and uh, no showers. Uh, there was a nice pool, uh, fresh water streams running down where they would bathe. So that was um, Ruth's ideal bathroom. It was gorgeous. It was out in the open, and but it was uh, clear and clean and... Uh, seemed like a, a very peaceful place. Um, of course, she was leaving the United States that at the time was was very uh, torn politically by um, 
Vietnam War and by riots and assassinations. So I think she also appreciated being in a place where it seemed like she was just away from the, the chaos of uh, modern civilization. Now, for my information, if for no other reason, is that Ruth on the cover or is that Dr. Goodall? That's Ruth on the cover of the book. And uh, she does look a little bit like Jane Goodall, uh, as that, you know, long, full head of hair. And she's also sitting next to a chimpanzee who's looking at her. She's looking at him. And so it's, um, you know, it's an actual photograph from the time. It's not a photoshopped. And uh, it's a very evocative picture of uh, a young American researcher named Ruth Davis. And a very lovely young woman she was. She was, yeah. All right. How was she received in the camp? I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, you'll have... How was she received by the other researchers in the camp? Well, I think um, neutrally, I think she was very, very quiet and very reserved, so she didn't make friends quickly, and um, she was also, because she was part of a couple, uh, they tended to keep to themselves, but they're, you know, they've uh, the group all ate together uh, at dinner, and uh, so she—I think she was received uh, reasonably well. There was no, you know, immediate hostility or anything like that. All right. Can you take us then to that day, the day she died? The, the, to which the, day? To the day she died. Oh, oh okay. Well, uh, we know now. The day she died was also the day she disappeared. And uh, that's part of, you know, what the book uh, uncovers. Uh, and the reason we know that is that uh, all of the researchers carried around tape recorders with them when they were studying chimpanzees. And they used these tape recorders to uh, take notes. So she was at the time she left camp, was following a chimpanzee into the forest. This was part of the research protocol. They would, you know, chimpanzees would come into camp where there were bananas, and they would eat the bananas, and then they would walk out again. And uh, so she followed one chimpanzee um, named Mike, and uh, she left about noon, and she followed for a few hours, uh, went very, very high into the hills. Uh, Mike was joined with a group of several other chimpanzees. And then uh, she went very far south, and unusually far south. So she, there, you know, the Gombe Stream National Park has at least a dozen deep valleys, and so she went essentially two valleys to the south of the valley where the camp was. And so she climbed a very high elevation, and she traveled very far south. So she was must have been tired. Uh, and she traveled following the chimpanzees for about three and a half hours. And then uh, she, she lost the chimps. They disappeared. And that's the end of the tape. So... The rest of what happened, we have to figure out from um, just calculations and, um, you know, deduction. Uh, the reason we have the tape is that uh, when her body was found, uh, it was found, as 
as I said earlier, at the base of a high waterfall. Her skull had been crushed in. And the tape recorder she carried had been smashed. She had been, her body had been there for six days, so it was disintegrating fast. She was, the body physically was in very bad shape by then. The tape recorder was smashed, but as it happened, the tape itself was intact. So they were able to play back the tape. And um, in the process of playing back the tape and, and transcribing it for evidence for the police, uh, they concluded that she was not depressed. She was not, there was no talk about suicide. There was no, she had been, by the way, depressed according to her letters. So we know she was not happy, but at least during that, that walk, that three and a half hour walk following the chimpanzees, we know she was not despairing or thinking depressed thoughts. So that seems to be pretty good evidence that she did not jump deliberately. Um, and then um, after she lost the chimpanzees, at about 3.30 in the afternoon, the tape is ended because she's no longer taking notes about her research. The chimpanzees are gone. So now her task is to get back to camp. And there are two ways to get back to camp. You can climb higher and find there's a path that crosses south and north that can take you back to camp if you climb higher up the, the mountain. If you climb lower, you can get down to the lake. And the easiest way to, to get lower, the most predictable way in which you know where you're going is to follow running water. So it appears that she went took that route to go down and she followed the stream down and the stream comes to a waterfall and then we know that her body was found at the base of that waterfall now how it got from the top of the falls to the base is the mystery and I think I solved it uh, and I write about the solution in the book but there are some complications and I don't you know I don't want to, if, if I were Agatha Christie, I would not tell you the ending, <laughs> and so let's pretend I am, and I won't tell you all of my conclusions, but I will say some compounding issues, and one was that there was a mysterious disappearance of, of records in camp, and, um, you know, this is a camp where they kept records of every single thing going on, because it was a research camp, so they... All of the researchers who went out, they kept maps of where they went, uh, all, and they kept uh, you know, records minute by minute of where they had gone and what they had seen in terms of chimpanzee research. So there should have been lots of records about where Ruth had been going during the days and weeks before this happened, but it turned out that there were some gaps in the records, and those gaps... Um, were pretty predictable in the sense that they did not, there was no evidence that she had been going that far south in her research. So uh, all of the maps were missing as well, and J uh, Ruth's uh, personal journal was also missing. So there were just unusual gaps in the record. Um, really, really seemed like a pattern. Uh, it seemed 
very much like somebody had deliberately removed uh, parts of the record. And that's the, one of the mysterious um, events, and I, I think we have the solution to that, and as I say, I write about in the book. So we can say with some degree of certainty she didn't trip and she wasn't pushed by a monkey. Well, uh, no, I think it, it is entirely possible she tripped and fell accidentally. Uh, and uh, so chimpanzees are not monkeys, but they're apes. But uh, okay. I think based on what we know about chimpanzees, uh, she wasn't pushed. Uh, it is true that uh, uh, a couple of months earlier she had been dragged by a, a male chimpanzee for about 15 feet along the ground, and he grabbed her leg and dragged her, and that's a, in itself is a very unusual thing. It's not usual for the chimpanzees to interact with the people at all. So what happened in that case was that she had developed a relationship with one of the chimps, and that's part of the book. Uh, and all of the chimpanzee researchers, as it happened, developed relationships with some of the chimps. And the best word probably to describe that relationship that developed in all three cases, the word would be friendship. And um, what do I mean by a friendship between a human and a wild animal in which the human is supposed to be an objective scientist studying the animal? Uh, I'll answer that question. Um, it, it's pretty simple uh, how it developed. First of all, chimpanzees are very much like humans in that they have all of our emotional equipment. You know, they form strong bonds with individuals, they recognize individuals, um, they, they form friendships with each other. So it's not completely surprising that they actually form friendships with some of the humans. Uh, the other part is that uh, once the humans were starting to follow chimpanzees as part of the research protocol, following in the forest and taking notes of their behavior as they wandered through the forest in their normal lives, um, there was another dynamic that took place because you can't follow a chimpanzee in that environment unless the chimpanzee lets you, okay? You can't just follow them because they they're faster than you. They can climb a tree in, in um, 30 seconds to the top of a high tree. They can jump from one tree to another with, you know, amazing uh, athleticism. Uh, they can swing on vines and cross through a ravine. They can go through some of the densest vegetation with with only no no limits. So humans are a, a tremendous disadvantage in that environment. Uh, and that means if you're going to follow a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee basically has to allow you to follow. If they don't want you to follow, they just disappear. And so that in itself was kind of a selection process. Chimps decided, well, this person I kind of like, so I'm not going to bother, you know, disappearing. It's too much work. I'll just let her follow me. And that selection was done by the chimps, and then the humans, in return, started to prefer 
these chimps. So there were friendships that happened. Uh, and the further evidence of these friendships is, uh, I won't talk about Ruth for a moment, but Geza, uh, who is Ruth's lover, Geza Teleki, uh, uh, talks about a time, his, his, the chimp that he got along with was named Leaky, and um, so I have photographs of Geza sitting right next to Leaky, Geza's smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup of coffee, and they're in camp, and Leaky, the wild chimpanzee, is just sitting there next to Geza, so that's the kind of closeness that developed, and Geza tells a, a wonderful story about one day following uh, Leaky into the forest, and he was following him all day long, and uh, in the middle of the day, you know, at the hottest time of the day, uh, Leaky and the group of chimpanzees Leaky was with decided to take a nap. It was norm chimps normally take a siesta in the middle of the day when it's hot. And so um, Leaky sat down and he, and because Geza was the researcher trying to follow Leaky, he also sat down and Leaky just kind of looked for a comfortable place to lie down a bit and take a little nap. And finally, he found a, a nice soft thing that would serve as a pillow, which is Geza's foot. <laughs> and uh, Geza was wearing sneakers, but they were still soft. And so Leaky grabbed Geza's foot, and he put his head on it. And he started to go to sleep, and then he had, was, had to get comfortable again. So he moved around a bit, and he dragged the, the foot until it, and it put his head back down and it went to sleep started snoring <laughs> so that's what I mean by a friendship that level of trust between a wild animal and a human is just astonishing what an astonishing story gotta take a break again Dale Peterson okay. we'll be back in just a bit WIP time 7.39 and we're back it's WIP Sunday into the home stretch with Dale Peterson his new book, The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. My name's Peter Solomon. Okay, Dale, she may have tripped. Um, we don't think she was pushed by a chimp. Um, was she pushed by a human, do you think? Maybe? Well, um, it's possible. Um, I, I reached a conclusion about that in the book. Um, and... I do consider all three possibilities, um, but I think um, we should, um, let's talk about the other possibility of accidental falling. I okay. Think that's what we're talking about. Um, the, uh, the reports uh, that I get about this um, particular falls, um, First of all, um, there's one person who said that he uh, tried to climb down that falls, and uh, he got about, it's uh, probably a 40-foot drop. He, uh, you can't, it's not very clear, you can't stand at the top and look down, so it wasn't clear to him how to get down, but he was following the river, the stream downhill, and he, uh, decided he would try to climb down, and he climbed down, and he found that he was on a 10-foot ledge, a, a ledge uh, 10 feet down, and uh, he had just disturbed a, a 
a bee's nest, so mm-hmm. he was in danger of being attacked by very aggressive African bees. Uh, and then he looked over the edge and he saw it was a 30-foot drop from there, so he had to make the choice. You know, do I jump down or do I run back and face the bees again and climb back up that 10 feet uh, up some vines to, to get to the level area again? And he chose to, to face the bees. So. Uh, here's a person who discovered that uh, it's a complicated start to the falls, and he discovered that um, there's a complicating factor of aggressive African bees. Uh, another person, uh, actually a person who was looking for a roost body, uh, came to the same falls, and she didn't see the top of the falls when she was walking down. She almost you know, because of all of the vegetation around, the obscuring vegetation, she didn't realize that she was approaching the top of the falls until she was right at the right at the edge. So that's a second uh, person who reports that this falls is not only complicated, it's not only the bees, but you really, you can actually imagine not seeing it until you're too close, dangerously close. So those are the reports we have. And um, there's a third report from someone who was standing beneath the falls after Ruth had fallen, after Ruth's death, looking up. And what he saw was uh, evidence that there had been uh, vegetation that had been torn recently, so a fresh, uh, fresh strip where the earth was exposed. And uh, so... Based on those three reports, I think we have a, a, a good suggestion that, that um, an accidental fall is a, is a pretty likely scenario. And um, we talk about the possibility of a chimp pushing Ruth, and I personally don't think that's likely. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we've, we've uh, explored some possibilities there. Why do you think books like yours, The Ghost of Gombe, fascinate us? Because while it's certainly a nature book and part biography, it's also part murder mystery. True yeah. crime. Um, you know, for me, the the actual... Um, I, I realize the spine of the book is the story of this death, and I do explore the issues concerning it and the mysteries concerning it. But for me... You know, the the part of the book that's most interesting is really the the relationship that developed between the humans and the chimps. So I do explore that. I, for me, that was just a, a truly fascinating story, a series of stories. And I did mention earlier that Ruth had been dragged by a chimpanzee about 15 feet, and I said this is a chimpanzee that she had a relationship with, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, his, this chimp was named Hugh, H-U-G-H, and um, he was a physically very, very um, impressive creature. So imagine, you know, chimps normally walk on four legs, but imagine that if you imagine Hugh standing up, and they do stand up on hind legs sometimes, uh, you would see something that looked like a human weightlifter, you know, Mr. America. I mean, this terrific build on his shoulders and 
chest and um, a very, very powerful animal. Uh, and a very, he was actually very calm and very self-confident as well. That was part of his character. And Ruth just found him just absolutely fascinated, fascinating. And she, Hugh was also a chimpanzee who didn't particularly like people. So nobody could follow him. And if, if you tried to follow him, he'd either disappear or maybe he'd throw a rock at you. And um, Ruth was the only human he allowed to follow him. So this was her special relationship. And uh, I think they were, you know, I think they were actually quite, you know, very friendly with each other. And uh, But in, you know, a very tense way. I mean, he was a wild animal. She was a human. And, um, but there were be moments, Ruth describes them in her letters, you know, normally if chimps are friendly with each other, they might ask to be groomed. They might come down and sit next to you and present their back to you and expect you to groom, you know, your back, uh, their back. And uh, grooming would be, you know, picking through it, picking out any insects or any specks of dirt and so on. It's just it's, it's really like humans grooming each other, going to the barber shop maybe. Uh, and so he did that to Ruth um, a couple of times. He came and sat down right next to her and turned his back to her, obviously expecting to be groomed, and she did groom him once. Uh, the other thing that, um, of course, the chimps actually have, as I said earlier, have all of the kinds of social relationships that we humans do. They have friendships, they have alliances, and they have sex. Uh, they don't have romantic relationships as we do. They don't have sort of bonded sex where, you know, couples pair off. Um, so it's just sex you know, when they're sexually attractive or attracted, uh, it happens. And the uh, a male who wants to have sex with a female, at Gombe, they'll give a signal. There's a special signal that uh, is unique to Gombe, and that signal is that the male will swish a branch. And it's not only the swishing of the branch itself, shaking a branch, but it's the sound of the leaves rustling when the branch is shaken. That's a signal. And the second part of that signal is a beckoning, as, you know, like we beckon, come here. And when a male does that to a female uh, at Gombe, that beckoning means, come over here, let's have sex, I want to have sex. Uh, and because chimpanzees um, are extremely patriarchal animals, uh, this is not true of all wild animals, by the way, or even all wild apes, but they're very patriarchal, which means that if the male says, come here, let's have sex, he does not take a refusal lightly. Uh, he's liable to, if the, if the female refuses or doesn't react to it, he's liable to go after her and maybe, you know, pound her a bit and beat her up. So it's the, you know it's the worst thing you can I mean, among humans we recognize that to be physical abuse among chimps it's just part of their normal behavior uh, so one time uh, in fact twice um, Hugh 
gave the branch shaking and beckoning signal to Ruth. And the first time, Ruth just ignored it, and Hugh just let it pass. Uh, a few weeks later, he did the same thing, and she ignored it. And he uh, suddenly grabbed her by the ankle and dragged her for 15 feet. Now, this sounds terrible and very violent and awful, but the remarkable thing from my perspective is that he did not beat her up. He did not punch her. He did not pound her. He did not attack her other than having dragged her. And for me, that says that he realized, no, I can't do this. This is one of the humans. I don't do that to humans. <laughs> I only do that to chimps. So it's really an extraordinary thing. And the, the restraint involved, because normally the, the, you know, the, the male would just go berserk and be very frightening. And he had restraint. He stopped himself. So that in itself is just a remarkable thing. Uh, it's one of the most amazing things about what I know about what happened. And I'd like to say thank you to Dale Peterson, his new book, The Ghosts of Gambi, A True Story of Love, Death in an African Wilderness. Thank you, Dale. Thank you, Peter. And it's been WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. If you can't, nothing left to say, but see you soon.